turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4. I hear Ryan, you guys had a camp meeting with him last week, so glad for that. Come on out to this Wednesday night study. Whether you've signed up or not, we'll let you in, and uh, we'll try to be a little rough on you. Uh, you may not have the syllabus and the book, but uh, surely somebody will share with you. Get a taste of what it is to uh, study this great salvation. Anybody getting anything out of it so far? Yeah, I mean, uh, the riches of it. I just, I love the fact I'm hearing people talk about their great salvation, and we always well, I'm saved. I don't know what from, and I don't know what all it's about, but I'm saved. Well, it sure helps when you find out what you got in the inheritance. I haven't been there for the reading. I didn't go in for the lawyer to tell me everything, but I, I hear I got an inheritance. We, we're wanting you to find out what you got, and that's all we're doing is undoing the package. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 4. Let me just bring you up. What he's saying, and today I'm going to uh, consider no one understands like Jesus. Anybody remember that John Peterson song? Yeah. No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He is waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus. When the days are dark and grim, no one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on him. Well, what he's done in the book, he's been telling us Christ is superior to the prophets, superior to angels, superior to Moses. But as he goes along in the book, he's given two warnings, the warnings of chapter 2, do not neglect so great a salvation. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 4.13, he gives another warning. Don't hold back in unbelief and forfeit God's rest. God offers a rest to his people, which means he's inviting us to step into his accomplishment. He finished creation and rested. He finished taking care of our sin problem in Christ and has rested. And he's inviting us to come and rest in that finished work of Christ. Now, He's going to pick up in 4.14 and run through chapter 10, about 15. So four through, he's going to now begin to describe what it's like to have a high priest up in the heavens who represents us. And he's going to show you it's superior to the old covenant, superior to the Levitical priesthood, superior tabernacle. This is the true one superior blood, on and on, extolling the great ministry of Christ. We're going to look at three things out of this passage. Christ has become our representative before God. He represents his people before God. You got to get that. That's key point. First thing we'll look at. And then, secondly, Christ sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with those he represents. And then thirdly, he promises us help. So he represents us, he sympathizes with us, and he promises to help us. Now, let's look at this passage. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, which is a term meaning he is deity. He shares the nature of God. Two exhortations. Let us hold fast our confession. That means keep holding on to the gospel you initially believed. Don't abandon it. You're being persecuted. You're being tempted to go back to Judaism. You're being tempted to give up this faith in Christ as Messiah. Don't go back. Keep holding on to the profession of faith you made in Jesus. Don't go back. Maybe you're being put out of your family. Maybe you're losing your business. It was not easy for them to take a stand for Christ, just like it's not easy in northern Africa right now, and Syria, and Iran, and Iraq, and the Chinese for years, the underground church movement. It's not been easy in this world for most people to go public and own Christ above ground. They paid a price for it. Uh, Our softness has led to our apostasy. Our softness leads to our uh, worldliness and liberalism. But where faith has cost is the most vibrant kind of Christianity. So he's saying, don't go back. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me take you back to chapter 2, verse 16, where he mentions the high priestly ministry of Christ the first time. Pick it up in 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Angels have no one to represent them before God but themselves. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That's what we're going to study this Wednesday night. In the service of God for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me first of all just say briefly what Leviticus, Exodus, I think about 28, describes the high priest. High priest, one priest gathered out of the Aaronic priesthood to represent the people of God once a year going into the Holy of Holies, Yom Kippur, Hebrew Yom Day Kippur, day of covering, day of atonement. So, one day a year, 14th day of Nisan, this man would go in to the Holy of Holies. He went, there was the outer court, inner, and then when you went beyond the veil to where the Ark of the Covenant was, he had to go in there with an animal sacrifice, his blood, sprinkle it on top of the lid of the Ark, and if God accepted that blood, that it was innocent, it met all the specifications. God was saying, I extend mercy 
and forgiveness to the nation until next year, same time, same process. Now, when he went in there in his wardrobe, it said he wore an ephod, and he had 12 stones that bore the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes that came out of Jacob. And he said, you're to wear this next to your heart. If you read the narrative in Exodus 28, wear these things. But he said several times, next to your heart, next to your heart. I want you to represent them to God. We need mercy. Who do you represent? Twelve tribes. This was the high. So the high priest did two things. He represented the people to God. And notice this. To approach God, the only way the people could have an approach to God is an innocent victim had to die. God was saying, you cannot approach me in the condition you're in without a substitute. Somebody's got to die for you to get access. And I'm only going to give you that once a year. And then when the high priest came out, he represented God to the people. God has accepted the sacrifice. And one of the living proofs of that is he didn't kill me. For my life was in jeopardy even going in there. But I represented you. God's accepted it, so I'm coming out to you. Now he's going to say in the book of Hebrews, Christ is a high priest, but he's not in the order of Aaron. He's not one that's going to offer animal blood. He offered his own blood. He has taken on this high priestly job of representing you before God the Father. I, I'm amazed at the very concept that when angels fell, when angels, angels could be tempted because one-third of them rebelled. But they have no mediator, they have no representative, and they have no one to atone. Every angel that sinned is doomed forever. There's no atonement, no forgiveness, and nobody representing angels. But us, we all became sinners in Adam, represented, fell, and now God has appointed for every believer a high priest representative. By the way, the world doesn't have this high priest. Jesus said that in John 17. I pray for you. I do not pray for the world. The world has no high priest. You don't get the high priest until you accept the sacrifice. Then you get someone that represents you to God the Father. And if you looked at chapter 216 and this, let me just compile the things he says. He will help us like he doesn't help angels. He became like us that he could represent us. He took on a full human nature. Uh, he said that as our representative, there's two things you can count on, mercy and faithfulness. He is reliable to go to God, and he is merciful to those he represents. Where would you go if you needed help among human beings? Who would really represent you. Do you want someone to represent you that has never experienced what you experienced? 
I think of uh, sending a multimillionaire to the White House to be my representative, and I'm living uh, in the projects. You don't know anything about folks living in the projects. You don't know anything. You just bought your way into an office. You don't represent a poor boy. In law, in law, put me on trial in Mississippi and give a white lawyer. Why don't you give someone my color to represent me? Do you really feel what I feel? Do you really know what I know? If I was a woman, I'd want a woman lawyer, maybe. Do you feel what it feels like? to be abused. Well, we have a representative in the heavens, and he's there that has passed through the heavens, and because he's there representing his people, he is telling us, hold on to your confession. Don't, don't give it up. Then he goes on to say, uh, this high priest sympathizes with those that he represents, sympathizes. And he's going to develop this in chapter 5. We'll come back to it. And he said when he picked a high priest, he picked a man of like weakness so that he could understand the weakness of the people. So he was appointed, and uh, he could go in there, had to bring a sacrifice for himself because he too was a sinner, now, in Christ's case, no sin, but he sympathizes with his people. Compassion. What's amazing about that term, he sympathizes. When you read the Old Testament, do you get the feeling of a sympathetic God? Do you feel sympathy uh, at the flood? Well, he, one man had favor. That was Noah. A lot of that, you don't always pick up a sympathetic God because even in Judaism, in elevating God's holiness and God's transcendence, that he's above us, uh, sometimes he's always going to get us. We're always having to do something to get his favor, even though you've got lamentations that says every morning he shows mercy. He's a God full of love, but there's sin. Their idolatry, their waywardness was always bringing out the side of God that he, he didn't want to show. And that is his anger, his displeasure. But in Jesus, God brought someone who fully sympathizes with our condition. I think of the little woman with the issue of blood hemorrhaging for 18 years and can find no doctor to cure the embarrassment of her condition, uh, the unclean, not allowed at the temple. Who would you want to tell that you've got an internal hemorrhage going on in your body? Surely no woman wants any man to know that. But all she had to do was touch the Savior's garment and was immediately healed. Lepers found a sympathetic ear in him. He didn't say, be cursed, unclean, unclean. He would touch them, and they would be healed. You see, the Greeks, they had no idea of a sympathetic God, none. There was none in Greek philosophy. 
Uh, let me give you a little rundown. I've shared it before uh, where uh, the Greeks, the ideal God was known to be uh, apatheia was the word I want to use. It was the God of the Stoics. And, and we know the phrase Stoicism means a stiff upper lip because they taught that the gods uh, cannot be manipulated by human emotion. If a god can be affected with emotion or feeling, uh, he's being manipulated, it's weak. So the Stoics taught themselves and their philosophy and their view of God was he's an unfeeling god, apatheia, the negative pathia, pathos. He has no feeling, no emotion. This is the ideal God. He does not feel. And so that's what they propagated. Of course, the Jewish God by this time had become the different God out there. Does he really care? And I love the Exodus story. He comes down to redeem the people. He told Moses, I'm coming down to rescue my people. But it's easy to keep him way up there, indifferent to us. And then you had among the uh, uh, gods of the Greeks, Epicureanism, which was eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was the summary. But they had a view of God that said their God was so high up that they said he was actually in between the space, if you can imagine this, the space between earth and heaven that their God dwelt in there. They called it intermundia, intermundia. The spaces in between, that's where their God was. Unreachable, untouchable. He, he can't be bothered by earthly existence. Out of touch, out of contact, cannot possibly feel. And then we come to Jesus. And the writer says, by the way, we have one in the heavens who says, you've never been tempted in any area of life that I have not been tempted a hundred times over. You've never been so poor as I've been. You've never been so hated as I've been hated. By the way, singles, I gave up marriage and I gave up family. I gave up, I had no family hardly. I had a couple of half-brothers. I had Mary. Joseph is off the scene quick. But I'm called an illegitimate child by my critics. I'm called the son of the devil. Poverty, hate, rejection, no real estate, no resources, no advantage, hated by the religious community, hated by the political community, not known in my own neighborhood. My own brothers don't believe in me. Uh, you've never had a temptation. you never had one. But what he had, it, but much greater. You see, this is the way you and I are. Let's take a temptation. Uh, let's say that's a one-ton temptation. And this is one ounce. What we normally do, we cave in on one ounce. There's so much relief when you just go ahead and do it. 
Is it that? Well, you know, I'm tempted to lie. Well, what did you do? I lied. It felt wonderful at the moment. I think I escaped. Then, if you're a Christian, the guilt, the remorse. Why do people yield to temptation? I think primarily as a way of escape, whatever the pressure is. Lust, hate, whatever. Uh, just, I'm tired of holding out. I, I can't hold out. It's seducing. It's appealing. Uh, it looks good. I, uh, the devil made me do it. And you do it, it's relief at first. And there's no one in the human family that has not yielded. We've all yielded over and over and over. Have you ever confessed any certain sin more than three times? You would say, I'll be smarter the next time because I've paid enough in uh, sorrow, uh, regret before the Lord, the work of the Spirit. I, it grieved me to do it. Well, why do you do it again, dummy? Why again? I'm temptable. I'm weak. I succumb. And the devil doesn't have to use any new tricks on me. The old ones keep working. Come on, some of you need to discover a new sin. No, no, not really. Don't edit that. You're so good at the old ones, try some new ones. No, that is, that is off the record, but it just felt like saying it. And you come to Jesus, or can you imagine coming to God? Well, God, you understand. <laughs> he said, yeah, I do. You're a rebel. You're disobedient. You're this. You're that. And yet I have a middle man who does not endorse my sin, but said, I'll give you mercy in the midst of your temptation. For I've suffered what you suffered. I've been tempted. I never yielded. But see, when you don't yield to something, it intensifies. Jesus went 40 days without food and water, and then he's tempted where? For food and water. Intense vulnerability. So in every point of our humanity, every area, I think sexuality, food, obedience to the will of God, relationships, people, in any area of testing the human family goes, he says, I've been there. I know what it's like. I just never yielded, but I know how intense the desire becomes. And what does he say? I represent you. I understand thoroughly the human weakness and frailty. Notice what he says there. He He's able to sympathize with our strengths. 15, most of you, amen, that first. It's weakness. Any of you got weakness? You know, you, you hear guys, well, I'm, I, I was uh, at a Bible conference last week, and a man came up to me, and, and he pulled out a coin, and he just showed me that. It was not just a regular coin, and he says, I said, yes, sir, what, what's that? You giving an offering? Just messing with him? No. He said, that represents 20 years of sobriety. 
And I wake up every day to the temptation to have another drink. Every day. But that's, that reminds me. A pastor took me. I was, the, I was the board chairman and a secret alcoholic. He said, that right there, and then he starts to fill up. Could Jesus sympathize with a drunk? He said he could. He said he could. Could he sympathize with a thief? I know, I mean, I, I can't imagine it on the same. You were never tempted to steal. But some way he says, I know every human foible, every human weakness, every human seduction to evil. I am thoroughly acquainted with it, and I will represent you with sympathy. Represent you with sympathy. That's what he says. And then he goes on, and he says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may be rebuked for our weaknesses. Oh, that we may what? Receive a beating? Mercy. And what's mercy? That's, it's not your mother-in-law. We'll, we'll look at Receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy means to show compassion on those suffering from some aspect of sin. Poverty, sickness, sin brought poverty, sickness, all the human can. So he wants to show compassion on those suffering from that. And grace is, I'll give you something you need. So I want to show compassion on the negative going on in your life. Grace, will, I'll give you something you don't have. And he said, uh, let us draw nigh to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. I just thought about our, our human condition. If I was really in need, let's say it's economic, uh, financially just broke. Uh, number one, I don't want to look up someone worse off than me. I want to look for someone with resources. And that's why most people with money keep it hid. You know, it's like people with spiritual gift of giving. I don't know one person in this church that claims it. I wish you would. I'd always preach to you. Boom, there's gift of giving. But people with resources have to be careful because people work them, use them, all of that. People want them just for their money, not for them. They know that. But if I'm uh, in a bad way and I need resources, I say to myself, I'm making an appointment with Bill Gates. And if he's not available, I'll go for Warren. He's over there in Nebraska. My wife's people from Nebraska. He'll sure enough let me in. Now, does Warren or does Gates have the resources to meet my need? I can't hear you. Yeah. I mean, how much interest a year? All I need is toothpaste. Millions. Millions is just out there. So people with the resources to meet my need doesn't give me any comfort. I can die in their presence. 
and never get a dime. Right? Now the second thing I need, can I find somebody willing to help me out? And that gets a little narrower. I mean, you can have all the millionaires you want in the top 500, Fortune 500 companies. Oh, man, I look at that name. Okay, find me one person that would be willing to give you the resources you need when you're in financial trouble. Who? Who would you go to? The bank? I remember when I was starting my junior year of college, Carolyn, I just got married. My dad had been paying my tuition up to, I was living at home, paying my tuition. Man, there's no problem. It was very cheap, not hardly anything. When I started college, it like tripled. I, I'm not even going to tell you how much because you'll laugh. It was so in those days. Uh, but we're just married, and I go in. Uh, I'm at Western Baptist in El Cerrito at that time. And so I'm signing up, and they write up everything. I always took 16 to 18 units. I wanted to get my bachelor's and get out of there. And uh, so they write up the bill and everything. And at the other school, you could pay it monthly. Uh, at Western, you paid at the time of registration. I, I, didn't, I didn't have the money at all. And so they added it up and uh, gave it to me. And I said, wow, I said, I can't. I can't pay this. I'd have to make time payment. I said, you need to go see uh, Jack Thiessen, the vice president. I go in there and see him, and shows, I show him the bill and tell him the situation. And so I'm looking for mercy. Can I pay this out for three months or whatever? And he simply hands me an application to the local bank they dealt with. He said, well, Phil, if God wants you here, he'll provide. Well, Jack, you want me here, don't you? Well, it's not really my problem. That's between you and God. So again, said, and the bank was right there in El Cerrito. He said, go down there. I'm glad many of our students get loans from them. I know they'll be glad to see you. I was looking for mercy. There was none there. When I started this church and I was going to seminary, I had the same situation. I had no money, but I wanted to go back to seminary, finish my master's. I went over there, added it up. I have no money. Mrs. Brown, I have no money. I just want to go to school, and I'm bold enough to be here. Uh, well, you'll have to go see the president. I went and saw Dr. Arnold Winnaker, staunch chairman, looked just like Hitler. Had the little mustache. He, he looked like Hitler. Scared me out of that office, practically. And I went up. Now, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Uh, yes, Phil, what can we do for I said, well, I've just started a church. I'd gone there before. I'd moved to Fresno. I'm back. Yeah, I want to continue my education, but I have no money. Said, well, what are you doing? I'm starting a church. Uh, how many people do you have? We haven't met yet. <laughs> haven't met yet. This was September. Church starts in October. And... Uh, well, what's your source of income? Uh, the air and God. I have no income. I thought my dad could help me, but he's dying. Uh, he said, well, what are you asking? I said, would you let me go to school? And when God gives me the money, I'll pay you. And he said, you know, with that kind of faith, you go. 
You go as long as you want. And if you ever get it, if you ever get it, pay us. And let's see, I only owe, no, I, I finally paid it. I finally paid it back. But that was mercy of a guy that seemed so stern. You see, you've got to have somebody with resources. You've got to have somebody that's willing. Now, watch. Hold on now. Let's ask two questions here. Does Jesus have enough resources to meet your needs? Ah, here's the problem, though. He's not willing. What did you say? Draw nigh. Draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace after it's too late. No, no. It's timely help. It will be just on time. The third component that Jesus had, you'll have to come to me for it. I've got it, and I'm willing, but I won't give it if you don't come. Why do you do that, Jesus? I know it's probably the only time some of you will talk to me is when you're at the end of your rope, I start looking good. So I'll send a lot of pain to get my children to talk to me because they seem to always know my address when the burdens are too heavy. Someone has said pain and sorrow is God's megaphone to get you to listen to him and to get you to talk to him. So he puts his little trials there, puts his little tests. And he's just waiting for you not to distrust, not to lose hope, but he's saying, why don't you go to the resource that is willing to help you? I'm seated right up here representing you. I'm sympathetic with your condition. I know what you need. Do you know what you need? Why don't you come? What kept him from going into the land? Unbelief? Maybe we don't believe this. He said, come, I'm representing you. What a promise. Draw nigh, and what do I need when I'm in the midst of my frailty and my weakness and vulnerability? What do I need but mercy and grace? I, I, I need, don't give me a lecture, Lord. I already know I'm a dummy. I know I blew it. I knew I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have made that choice. Uh, I'm weak. I know I'm ignorant. I don't know the answer to this. So he said, come to me. Come to me. You've got a sympathetic representative before the Father, and I'm sympathetic with you down here. I just don't hear you. You don't come. That's why I stagger at how many prayerless Christians there can be. Why don't you pray? You mean you're not weak? You don't have temptation? You're not vulnerable? You're not human? <laughs> you don't have to have some big tragedy. Just be a human being. That's enough. That, that, that means we're needy. Just, I mean, that baby comes out crying, and I want mama. Take care of me. Feed me. Change my diaper. Keep on. And that goes on for 70 years. <laughs> I need mama. I need daddy. I always flew home when I was beat up. I always flew home when things were tough because I had two people that always loved me and showed mercy. Some of you, are you merciful? Yourself. Can people find mercy in you or 
maybe critical spirit, murmuring, a complaining, negative. You know, it's why that song, I, I just leaned over to Carol. I said, only Pentecostals sing these songs. Conservatives don't show enough joy. They're scared to death of it. Might make them emotional. But I looked up the verse. Life isn't all about eating good meals. It's about joy in the Holy Ghost. You ought to have joy, not because everything's going right, but because of the Holy Ghost. By the way, ghost, that's the way King James translated it. It's spirit. But don't get nervous. He won't mind if you call him either one. Sympathizing. Stories told Dr. John Wilson used to tell the story of how a preacher named Booth Tucker uh, preached at the cathedral, or no, the Citadel for Salvation Army in Chicago. And as he was preaching there, he was telling them about a sympathetic, wonderful Savior that can feel, that cares for you. And all of a sudden, a man in the audience just stood up and spoke out with great uh, agitation. And these are the words he said uh, to Booth Tucker. How can you talk about an understanding, sympathetic God? If your wife had just died like mine did, and your babies were crying for their mother, who would never come back, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. I don't need a Christ like you're preaching. You wouldn't preach this kind of message if you had just lost your wife as I have. I don't want to hear any more. Well, a few days later, Booth Tucker's wife was killed in a train wreck. They sent her body to Chicago to the Citadel to have the funeral. And after the service, the bereaved preacher, he looked down to the audience, and this is what he said. The other day when I was here, a man told me that if my wife had just died, that Christ was understanding and sympathetic. He said, I, he said to me, you will not be able to tell them Christ understood you or that he sympathized or that he was sufficient for every need. I want to say if that man is here, I want to tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart is broken. It is crushed, but it has a song. And Christ put it there. I want to tell that man that Jesus Christ speaks comfort to us in the midst of our sorrows. The man was there. And he came and knelt next to the casket, and Booth introduced him to Christ. The old song, I looked it up today, goes this way. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear my burdens alone. Jesus, help me. There's no one who understands you and where you are like Jesus. Not even this preacher. Not even this preacher. Yeah. I think one of the most awkward things we go through is have a Bev Malin burying a husband. 
and Marilyn Wood burying a husband, the Lloyd family losing a son, and you go up and say, oh, I understand. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't understand, not like them. You haven't experienced it. Christ has experienced it. And you know what the Bible says? God expects you to take all the comfort God has given you in your sorrows, your trials, and share that comfort with others. 2 Corinthians 1.3, God comforts us in all of our troubles that we might comfort others with the same comfort we've been comforted. I always love, in my memory, I love the memory of taking my father to San Rafael for a funeral when he was dying of cancer. I kept pulling over by the road so he could throw up. He was going through radiation treatment. He had kidney cancer. He was a sick man, throw up, throw up, pull over by the road, throw up. And I said, Father, you don't need to be here. You're a sick man. Take me to this funeral. I want to be there. Why? You don't need to be there. When we got there, Cheryl and Paul Dixon were burying the little blonde-headed girl. And everybody was, you know, a lot of preachers. He was a pastor. A lot of folks were around trying to offer their, you know, condolence, whatever. All of a sudden, I see this sick father of mine make his way through the crowd, and he finally gets up to this couple. And the next thing I know, he's got his arm around Cheryl and around this preacher, and they're having a word of prayer. Why, why, why? Why don't you stay home? You're going to die in a matter of months. You don't need to go to funerals. On the way home, I said, why did you insist? Why did you insist? He said, when I buried your two brothers in Eldorado, nobody was there. We were two farm kids. None of our people could come. It was cold. Only the insurance policy, $500 from the bread company that the driver killed my brother, ran over him. The doctor that was too drunk to put the forceps on right killed my second brother. But when you're poor kids from Oklahoma, you don't have any money to hire lawyers. You just bury them and weep alone. He said, I was alone. But God comforted your mom and I. She had the nervous breakdown. But I owed, I owed it to this couple to tell them Jesus understands and he will comfort you in due time. This is the Jesus we're offering to a lost world. No one understands like Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are suffering on any level that you would encourage their heart to draw near in prayer, and share their every burden with Jesus. To not try to be religious or pious in talking to you, but just to be transparent, to tell the gut-level, gut-wrenching ache of their heart. And you said you'd give them mercy, and you'd give them grace, and you'd come to them just in time, just in time. If there's anyone here that does not have a Savior, that does not have anyone in their life that cares, I invite them to come to you, Lord Jesus. No one, no one ever cared for me like Jesus.
save them. Let them know that you're standing by and you're, you're ready to embrace them and hold them up. I pray that you would give them a mighty Savior. Bless these dear people today, I pray.